This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Are you sick and tired of biased hockey talk? Then you have come to the right place. The Drop focuses on the St. Louis Blues, but we also delve into other news from around the NHL. So tell the ref you don't mind the game misconduct penalty. You were headed to the locker room anyway to listen to The Drop. Here's your host, Lance Descott. This is your host, Lance Descott. I want to thank everyone very much for joining me for this special segment of The Drop Podcast. It's time for a view from the crease with former Blue and NHL Hall of Famer goalie Grant Fuhr. Welcome once again to A View from the Crease, another episode with Grant Fuhr. Grant, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks, Lance. Great to hear. I know last time you and I talked, we talked right before the trade deadline. We talked about a lot of players, uh, Panarin. We talked about Duchesne, Dezingle. We talked a little bit about uh, if the Blues would do something. But to start everything off, I wanted to talk to you about the Columbus Blue Jackets. The Blue Jackets made a big splash by going out and getting Duchesne and getting Dezingle. They gave up a decent amount for them. And if I'm not mistaken, Duchesne has three goals and three assists. And I think Dezingle has one goal and four or five assists. So in your mind, has it been worth it, the the rental players that they got for what they gave up? Well, I think what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to be some chemistry. I mean, I think that's going to be the big thing. Anytime you bring in new players at the trade deadline, it takes two, three, four weeks for there to be some chemistry for guys to figure out who they're playing with, what styles they're going to play. And I don't think Columbus has found that chemistry just yet. So I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a good deal for them. But there's going to be some growing pains in the meantime. Sure. It's kind of like the Blues when the Blues made all the offseason moves. I always told people it's going to go several ways. These guys are going to click really quickly, which normally doesn't happen. Or they're going to be, you know, really bad for a while and then maybe get really good. Or they're just going to have huge up and downs, you know, huge swings with two or three wins, two or three losses, five wins, three losses. It takes time for guys to get to know each other. I mean, these guys are professionals. They've played hockey since they're four, five, six years old. They know how to play the game. It's just learning how to play the game with new players. It is. I mean, a lot of it's chemistry. And I think what you see in the playoffs, the teams with the best chemistry are the teams that end up winning. So it's going to take some time for some of the teams that made deals and such to find that chemistry. I mean, you look at a team like Vegas, they add Stone to their lineup. It's taken a little bit of time for him to figure out who he's going to play with, how he fits in. But they're starting to find their stride now. And they're going to be tough to beat. Yeah, I definitely think Vegas is being overlooked a little bit by some people in the national media. I think a lot of people feel that they're not as good as they were last year. And you and I talked about it in the last episode of A View from the Crease that I think in some aspects they're better. And like you said, when Stone first got there, he gelled a little bit. But in the last, I'd say, two weeks, he's really starting to look good out there. He does. I mean, it takes time when you get traded to a new team to find, to get comfortable. Is I think what the biggest thing, what that's what I would call is being comfortable. And it takes, it probably takes you two, three weeks a lot of times to get comfortable with new line mates, as a goalie with new defense pairings in front of you, that sort of thing. It takes time for that chemistry to kind of gel a little bit. And they're starting to gel. And they've still got a month before playoffs, so I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, I also think they're going to be pretty good. I I'm, I don't think uh, the fans out there have too much to worry about. The other side of the trade with the Blue Jackets, you've got the Ottawa Senators just cleaning house. I, I, I know some changes were made when you were up in Edmonton. You've seen the writing on the wall there. But you guys had been successful. What has that got to be like for those players that are left there in Ottawa and the fans to see all these top-notch players go, especially a young guy that's got a lot of room to grow like to Zingle. And now all of a sudden, these guys that haven't been 
that haven't had to step up or having to step up. And I've seen games where they look pretty good and other games, they look really overmatched. What kind of signal, Grant, from your experience, does that send to a team when you see them kind of clear house like that? You're in a spot where you're going to get to play some minutes you wouldn't normally get to play on a really good hockey team. So you're getting to showcase yourself. But as a fan, it's tough to sit there and watch a team go through growing pains and having basically a rebuild right in front of your eyes. That's tough to watch. Yeah, it, it is very tough to watch. I remember years back when the Blues said they were rebuilding uh, when they drafted Oshie and Perron and all those guys. And uh, it was very frustrating in the mid-2000s. And, you know, they continued to get better, and they are where they are now. But as a fan, it, it kind of upsets you because the ticket prices are still the same, but the product on the ice isn't the same. Uh, and also with Ottawa, I wanted to talk to you about uh, their owner, he comes out with a statement after all these trades that we're not good right now, but you're going to see great you're going to see great prosperity like never before in the Ottawa Senators from 2021 to the to, to the 24-25 season. I know he's got to sell the team grant, but is he really being realistic that quickly? Uh, it might be a little bit of a stretch. I mean, if you look at where they are right now and where he's going to have them or so he says he's going to have them in two years it might be a bit of a stretch but at the same time they're going to get better i mean as the as the guys get more comfortable in the game they play more minutes they're obviously going to be better players so they're going to get better it's just i'm not sure if it's quite that fast in five years they could have a good hockey club yeah i i've been thinking that it would probably take about three or four years before they really start to compete for something serious uh, it seems it's amazing to me, Grant, that when you look back at it, and a lot of people don't think it was this close in a timeline that in the playoffs in 2017, they were in the conference finals against the Pittsburgh Penguins in game seven. And now look where they're at. It's, it's a lot easier to go from really good and getting rid of your players to go to really bad than it is to go from really bad to get really good again. Oh, it's a lot easier to fall down the ladder than climb the ladder. I mean, I think if you look at a lot of different teams, you look at Edmonton, the run they had in the playoffs a couple of years ago to where they are now, it's pretty easy to fall down that ladder. But to be able to build yourself back up and find that confidence and that chemistry that makes you a good hockey team again, it takes a long time. Yeah, and I, I'm like you. you know, I'm a fan of the Oilers. I'm a fan of several teams in Canada because of the time I spent up there. I thought for sure Edmonton would make a couple moves, maybe not nothing major uh, at the trade deadline, but I thought they might try to add maybe one more defenseman. But the only move that they made that was big in my mind was getting rid of Talbot to to Philadelphia, and they got they got Gagne back, and he's helped them out a little bit. But I honestly thought they would be closer than they are to that eighth wild card spot. They got seventy one points now. Arizona's got 78. There's only 10 games left. Do you agree with me, Grant, that it's that it's impossible for them to come back and get one of those playoff spots? Because, I mean, they basically have to win all 10 and hope somebody just really goes bad. Well, I think they've put themselves in a really tough spot where they can't afford to lose another game and they still need help. So anytime you put yourself in that spot where you're relying on somebody else to go out and lose, the odds aren't good. They don't look good for you, but they've also got to show that they can compete. Guys are playing for jobs for next year. So I expect them to still be competitive. But as a fan of the Oilers, it, it's disappointing to see where they are right now. I mean, they're a more talented team than what they've proven. Yeah, you, I mean, you've got McDavid, you've got Drysaddle, you've got Nugent Hopkins, you've got Nurse, you've got Chase on. These are guys that are good players. I, I think it's just a depth issue. Once you get past that first line, the second line's pretty good. And then that third and fourth line, I think, just drops off drastically, at least in my mind. Well, I think the biggest problem is they got rid of some secondary scoring and getting rid of Everlay, and they never replaced it. And the secondary scoring in the league today is hard to get. So if you don't go out and replace that, you rely on two or three guys. You look at Colorado, they relied on the one line. Yeah, it works for a little while but then they're going to see the best defensive players every night. And eventually they're going to be worn out and it's not going to work anymore. And I think Edmonton's seeing that right now. 
Yeah, they definitely are. And and you're spot on there with Colorado. They were lights out for the first half of the season, maybe a little bit beyond that. And they played that first line so much that that they are wore out. And past that, they don't have those secondary guys, those 12 to 18 goal guys that really make up your secondary scoring. They've got two or three guys that can score, you know, 25 goals. But they're like Edmonton. You get past that and there's really not much. There's guys with five, eight, ten goals, but you don't have those 12 to 20 goal guys like you need on a team to be successful. No, and in the course of 82 games, you have to have some depth scoring. I mean, you look at the teams, you look at a team like Minnesota, you look at a team like Vegas, you look at a team like Calgary, they're getting scoring through all four lines. And the teams that make the playoffs and are successful, it's not your stars. Your stars will always score. It's your second line, third line guys chipping in, whether they get 18 goals, 20 goals. Those are goals that a lot of teams aren't counting on, but you have to have those to become a good playoff team. Yeah, you do. And we were talking about surprise teams, and we're going to go in the opposite direction here. You know, we're both surprised that Edmonton hasn't made more of a push, but we all know the Blues were one of the worst teams in the league at the beginning of January, and so was Arizona. And you and I talked about it last time. Arizona and Los Angeles were the two worst teams in the Western Conference. Los Angeles is still down there, but Arizona is at 78 points in the second wild card spot. They have really, really poured it on. Well, I think a lot of that's Rick talking as a coach. I mean, I was lucky enough to coach with Talk when I was in Arizona before. And he's a first-class individual that strives teamwork. He pushes the hard work. He's a lot like Craig Perubius in St. Louis. I mean, I've played with both guys. They're hard work guys. They were hard work guys when they played. They're the same when they coach. And as a player, you love to play for guys like that because you know they've got your back and they've been there before. They know how hard it is to push and grind every day. And the fact that they treat the first line guys the same as the fourth line guys, everybody's on the same page. You'll play for guys like that. Gerard Gallant's the same way in Las Vegas. I mean, that's just, those are guys you'd like to play for. Yeah, and, and they're guys that expect honesty and 100% from you, but you know if you give an honest effort and 100% effort, they're going to give you their best too. It's true. You don't have to be successful playing for a guy like that. You just have to give it 100%. And that's all they expect because that's what they do. That's what they did when they played. And they coached the same way. And as a player, that's all you can ask for. I mean, I know when I was in St. Louis, we had Joe Glenville, same thing. He was a four, five, six defenseman, so you knew he had to play with his heart every night. And he was the same way coaching, so it's fun to play for a guy like that. Brian Sutter, my last year in Calgary, same thing. Hard-nosed guy. There's no gray area. It's either you do or you don't. You just you play hard. Yeah, I think a lot of coaches, especially in today's game, tend to make some mistakes sometime and treat those top-tier guys a little bit better. And I think that always ends up in a terrible situation in the locker room. You've got to treat guys the same way. Sure, guys that are, are better are going to get more playing time. But when it comes to face-to-face, when it comes to on the bench, when it comes to a coach-player relationship, you've got, you've got to be pretty even with all your players. You do. I mean, you want your fourth-line guys to feel like they're first-line guys. And that's half of being a good coach is making everybody feel the same. You, all, you want everybody on the team to feel like they're important. And you see the good coaches – do that where every player feels important every player has a role and when they know what role it is you put them in a place where they can be successful yeah and to me that's the definition of a good coach it's not a guy that necessarily is out there yelling yelling at a player uh, you know it's a it's a guy that puts his players in places where they can be successful figures out what they can do what they can't do a bad coach is a guy that looks at a player and says i'm going to use him here even though that player is not going to be successful, which means the team's not going to be successful. It's true. I mean, you want guys to be successful wherever they're playing. And the really good coaches put players in a position to be successful. And I think you see a lot of that in the teams that are making a push now is everybody's in a spot where they're comfortable so that they can play 100% without fearing making a mistake. And that that's a lot of what we Good coaches do that too. They let you play free where you don't have to worry about making a mistake. Sure. And we're talking about, uh, you know, teams that have surprised us this year. 
Edmonton, Arizona, but in opposite ways. Do you see a team right now that you look at and think, you know, if they just keep things together or if they just really start playing well, they could go a long way in the playoffs this year? Well, I think if you look either east or west, anybody that's in that six, seven, eight spot come playoff time could quite easily knock out a one, two, three. I mean, I, I think that's the fun part is the teams are good. And they're just starting to hit their peak. And that's that's kind of what you want in the playoffs is you want to hit your peak as you go into the playoffs. So you're, some of the bottom teams have been playing playoff hockey now for a month. So they're footed, they're, they're, they hit all strides going into the playoffs, which is perfect. Yeah, and the way that I always look at it, a lot of people look at, you know, you got teams like Tampa that just seem to be scoring all the time. And they're going to be up there. They're going to be competing for the Stanley Cup this year. But when I look at the playoffs and I try to figure out who's going to get far, the two things I look at, Grant, and I don't know about you, defense and goaltending. Do they have four good defensemen, at least three top defensemen, four good, maybe five? Do they have those guys? Do they have a goaltender that can save them a game? And to me, those are the two important things when it comes to a playoff. Actually, three. Don't make mistakes. Play good defense and make sure your goaltender is hot at the right time. I agree with that. I mean, the biggest thing is you want your team playing free and loose. So the teams that are worried about making mistakes, make mistakes. The teams that play free and loose, which, again, comes down to goaltending, you'll play free and loose if you know your goalie's going to bail you out. So the good teams in the playoffs have a hot goaltender where they're not afraid to make a mistake. If they make a mistake, they know their goalie's going to bail them out. Yeah, and I think a lot of times here in St. Louis – I know you're aware of the situation with Jake Allen and Jordan Bennington. I think Jake has gotten to a point in his career where he gets a little nervous sometime and antsy. I think he's got the tools to be a very good goaltender. I don't know if he's got the tools to be an elite goaltender, but it seems like when the team plays in front of him, Grant, they do not look as confident in themselves or in their goaltender as they do when they play with the youngster Jordan Bennington. It's true. Teams play different for different goalies. I mean, if a, if the team has 100% confidence in the goalie, they play a looser, freer style. Whereas if you're not sure if you're going to get that save, all of a sudden you sit back a little bit, you're maybe not as creative offensively, and it makes a big difference. So you want a team, you want a goalie that's hot going into the playoffs because you know that the team can play free in front of them. Yeah, and you know a team, the people in St. Louis aren't going to like this, but a team that I think they've been up and down for the season – but they've got two things that I think could really help them in the playoffs, and they've got a decent defense, and Dubnik at times can really frustrate you, but at times he can be one of the top goaltenders in the league, and I think if Minnesota could get in, they're only a point behind Arizona now, they could do some damage. Like you said, one of the lower-end teams doing damage. They could. I mean, they're going to be a hard team to play against because, again, they work the four-line system. They're getting scoring out of four lines but they're going to need goaltending coming down the stretch. I mean, if you look at Nashville last year, everybody thought, well, they've got a chance to win the cup. All of a sudden they don't get goaltending. They become a very average team. So if Pecorini gets hot, there's another team that's going to be hard to play against. So there's a lot of teams that are in that boat. They need a goalie to get hot. You look at how good Calgary's been. They've had both goalies get hot. So it's, that's, going to be the telltale sign this year flurry stays hot in vegas it makes vegas a good team vasilevsky in florida if he's hot that makes them a great team so it's going to be interesting yeah it is and i was watching something on sportsnet the other day and they were breaking down which team in in the eastern conference was going to have a better chance to get into the stanley cup and they were ranking the defense the goaltending the power play so on and so forth and I love the Maple Leafs, Grant, just like you do, because you know, especially you played for them. And that's the team every young kid wants to play for in Canada. But they had the Maple Leafs winning every single category over the Lightning. The Lightning only won one category in defense. And I think these teams, the Leafs and Lightning, are close. But I don't think the Leafs have an edge over the Lightning like Sportsnet had them. I'd have to agree with you on that. I don't think the Leafs are solid enough in their defensive core and I think their goaltending's hit or miss. 
I mean, if Frederick Anderson plays great, they have a chance. But they also don't match up great against Tampa Bay. They don't match up great against Boston. So I think they're in tough this year. Yeah, and I've I've said it now for two years now, and people, especially people, my friends in Canada that I know have been on to me because I said Anderson is just the X factor. If he goes on a run like he can play sometimes, Toronto could really do some damage in the playoffs. If he's inconsistent like he can be at some times and one game get a shutout and the next game he just frustrates you and lets in four goals, they're not going to go far in the playoffs. No, and that's going to be kind of the you don't know. I mean, if you look at their defense the last, what, three, four games that they've played, they've given up, give or take, 23, 24 goals. Mm-hmm. If they play like that, they're going to be out quickly. If they play like they did just before Christmas, they've got a chance. So it's kind of hit or miss with that team. The team that nobody talks about that I really like is Winnipeg. Oh, yeah. They just yeah. quietly go about their business, and they're solid from top to bottom. Yeah, and everybody I've talked to, Grant, says, well, they didn't make any major moves. And I'm, I always tell people it's not the major moves you make. You can be a team that's good, the top two or three teams in your conference, in your division. It's the players you add, what do they bring, and can they can they gel and mesh with the guys that are on your team? You don't have to trade for great players. All you have to do is trade for players that fit into your team like a puzzle piece. And you look at the one trade they did make. They brought Matt Hendricks back. Yeah. Matt Hendricks, I think that's the one thing that was missing at Edmonton. The year they went to the playoffs, Matt Hendricks was there. He's kind of that veteran that's kind of the glue. He leaves Edmonton. Edmonton kind of falls apart. He goes to Winnipeg. Winnipeg has a great, solid year. Yeah, they lost in the playoffs. They let him go. All of a sudden, Winnipeg's kind of inconsistent and not as good. They bring him back, and all of a sudden, they look good again. So it's guys like that that nobody thinks of or speaks of that make a huge difference. And he's one of those guys. Yeah, and I, I, I think he's he's one of those guys, Grant, that I, I think his, his teammates kind of feel bad if they disappoint him. And I think he's he's one of those guys that brings people together. And you said it. When, they, when he was there with Edmonton, they look much better than – they, they look much better than they do without him. And then when he left Winnipeg, Winnipeg didn't look very good. And now they're looking pretty good. He's just that piece that fits within their scheme and the players there like him. Yeah, and it's one of those, he's one of those players that doesn't get enough credit where you are kind that's of true. the glue. And that's the big things in Edmonton. We had three or four guys like that, guys like Pat Hughes, Davey Hunter. You don't notice them. Nobody really pays much attention to them. But at the end of the day, those are your character guys that you have to have in the playoffs. They can play on any line. They can play the hard minutes. And that's what winning teams have. Yeah, and a lot of fans think that every guy needs to be a leader. You don't need every guy to, to be a leader. If you have if you have 18 guys wanting to be a leader, you're going to have issues. You're not going to be a very good team. You need guys that are and I, I, I you need guys that are the CEO, the COO and executive type guys. Uh, like you had in, in Edmonton, you had Messier, you had Gretzky. Gretzky was kind of a quiet leader. Uh, Messier would kind of call you out, you know, when, whenever you deserved it. But he didn't call you out because he hated you. He called you out because he wanted the team to be better. And that's the, that was the great thing about our team is we had le- leadership from top to bottom. Everybody knew where they fitted. And nobody wanted to be that weak link. And that's the biggest thing is you need to have 30 guys all pulling on the rope the same way so that you want to play for each other because nobody wants to let anybody down. And it only takes one guy to ruin that. And that's the one thing that great teams have is they all buy into the same system. Yeah, because good teams, when a player lets a team down, you can tell that they're a good team by the way the other guys act and by the way that player acts after he makes a mistake. You can tell he really feels... He didn't just let himself down, but he let the team down and the coach down. It's more so that he let everybody else down that would bother him. Not so much it would, it would bother him that he let himself down, but it's the 20 other guys around him. And on sure. a good team, those 20 other guys will pick that guy up. And that's the big thing. Yeah, you definitely have to be able to pick each other up. Uh, getting back to the leaves, uh, I've heard rumors that uh, Mitch Marner is going to want million a year. You and I both know, Grant, with the cap situation that they have, with the bonuses they have to pay out at the end of the year, 
there's no way that they can afford to pay Mitch Marner that. The best in my mind from from what I can see is tell the guy, hey, we can give you a three or four year deal because they can't have that deal expiring at the same time that Matthew's deal does in my mind. We'll give you a three or four year deal. Maybe it's a little less than you can get elsewhere, but you're going to be playing with Matthews. You're going to be playing with, with Nylander. You're going to be playing with all the guys you love to play with. But I do think some other team is going to offer him, is going to give him an offer sheet. Well, I could see that happening. I mean, he's one of those talented players, and does he deserve the 10 or 11 million? Yeah, he probably does. But the Leafs are in that boat where they've got enough stars. I mean, you've got Tavares, you've got Matthews, you've got Kapanen, you've got a bunch of guys that they're going to have to sign that have signed the big money or they're going to have to sign the big money. So you got to pick and choose who you want. Yeah, and I, I think that's why at the beginning of the year, I was telling people, I think this has to be the year for the Leafs because they definitely cannot keep this team together after this year. There's going to be some pieces missing, but I'm sure that Mike Babcock and management will get some guys in there that are going to be able to play. Uh, getting back to Marner, do you see him getting a long-term deal, especially if it's not from the Leafs, maybe six years, five years, or do you think teams, uh, because they're heading into this uncertainty with the CBA, are going to give maybe a three- or four-year deal? Well, I think that's kind of the big thing that nobody really knows is what's going to happen with the CBA. So could I see him getting an offer sheet of seven, eight years? I could. Somebody might want to do that. And there's a lot of, there's some teams that have cap space and have room that he would fit great on. With the CBA coming up, you don't know what's going to happen. So does somebody go out on a limb and give him that big deal? That's going to be the big question. Sure it is. And one thing that not a lot of people are talking about, the NHLPA and the owners can opt out of it this September, in September of 2019 if they want to. And you don't hear a lot of that talked about in the media about them doing that. And I think it's possible that the, and that the NHL owners and Gary Bettman are going to opt out of this contract early in September. I don't know if they will or not. I mean, the game's running along right now. It's it's going on at a good clip where I think the ownership is making pretty good money out of the deal. So I don't know if they want to upset the apple cart and upset fans. I think that's the biggest thing is everybody realizes what happened the last time where it turned fans off the game, and it's taken five or six years to get back to where it is. So I got to think both sides are a little bit gun-shy of opting out. You could be right. You most definitely could be right. Um, the one thing that, that concerns me is – uh, if you're an owner, the way that Bettman has went on and on about how much the game has grown, you know, how much they charge the Golden Knights for their franchise, how much they charge Seattle. And it was a lot more than the Golden Knights. What was it? 150, 160 million dollars more. And he keeps talking about how the game's growing, how it's making money. To me, that just gives the the players, the NHLPA, just a great bargaining chip. It does give the players a great bargaining chip. I mean, as franchises keep coming into the league, there's more jobs. And with salary caps climbing, more jobs, more money. So from a player's perspective, it's a great thing. From an ownership perspective, that money, that revenue has to come from somewhere. So whether there's a big TV deal in the future or more networks that want to buy in in the future, it's hard to see where that revenue is going to balance itself out. Yeah, and uh, I just, I just think that it would be terrible if either side left the bargaining table because, like you said, it's taken them so long to get back to where they are right now. It's a strong game. Attendance is great, even though in some uh, cities ticket prices are really, really high. Uh, look at Toronto. They have outrageous ticket prices, but people are always there. People people leave those tickets to their family and their wills. I mean, this this game is is more important to people now than it's ever been. And it's bigger than it's ever been, at least to me in the United States. Well, and that's the part that worries me a little bit is ticket prices climb every year and you're going to hit a threshold where eventually people are going to say, I'm not paying that. So they've got to be careful in what they do with ticket prices. And you can, yeah, beer, what's a beer at a stadium now, 14 or 15 bucks. So you have about maxed that out too. So I think revenue is pretty close to being maxed out. I mean, 
yeah, luxury suites. All the new buildings have more and more luxury suites. So there's still probably still a little bit of revenue they can squeeze there, but they've got to be careful with the concession prices. They've got to be careful with ticket prices that they don't price themselves right out of the market. Yeah, and one thing I, I think the NHL needs to look at when it comes to concession prices, and you and I haven't talked about this, and hopefully I'm not putting you on your spot. Uh, I believe his name's Art Blank, the owner of the Atlanta uh, Falcons. He instituted family pricing yep. at the stadium down there after he built the new stadium. Beers are $5, sodas are 3 or 4 nachos are 3 or 4 hot dogs are 3 or 4 And in all actuality, Grant, his CEO says they are making more money off of that, off of the concessions, because more people are buying them than they were when a hot dog was eight or ten bucks and a beer was fourteen or fifteen. They went to the theory of quantity. If you make it reasonably priced, people are going to buy more. And that actually, in sense, it actually makes sense. If you get a reasonably priced beer, people are going to have more beer. People have more beer, they have more hot dogs. So it, it makes it makes some sense. But at the same time, I know all the owners want to make money. So they've got to be semi-careful about revenues in, revenues out. I understand some of it, but I don't understand a lot of the intricacies of it. But I do know that as a fan, they're getting close to that bubble where it's over the top. Yeah, and one thing that upsets me when I go to a game now, and it's nothing against you know the new fan, the new NHL fan, uh, and you and I have talked about it. It seems like no matter where I go, what arena I go to, and I've been to a lot of them, is the fans up in the mezzanine are just the ruckus fans, the true diehard fans. And I'm not saying the people down below aren't, but it seems like to me that more and more the true fans are up in the cheaper seats and the more corporate uh, people that can afford those expensive tickets are down below or in the club seats, the all-inclusive seats, the suite seats. And you are right. The NHL has to be very careful about that. Oh, yeah. Well, your diehards are definitely the ones in the upper bowls. I mean, the lower bowls have gotten more corporate over the last 10 years. I mean, I what I'd like to see the NHL do is bring the white jerseys back at home where you see all the visiting teams come in in their road jerseys. I think you'd sell more jerseys that way because you get to see teams in their colors. Instead of seeing the home fans seeing their team in their colors, they're going to buy that jersey anyway. But teams on the road, they get to see the color, different colors of the jerseys. They're going to sell more jerseys that way. So I think that's kind of another stream of revenue for them. Yeah, and I've, I've thought that, Grant, ever since they implemented that to where the home team started wearing the away, what used to be the away jersey. It never made sense to me, and I felt the same way. If they went back to the old way, they are. They're definitely going to sell more jerseys, and they're going to make more money. I agree with that. And jerseys are what a couple hundred bucks a pop now, so that's a big stream of revenue. Yeah, I think the cheaper ones now are one sixty nine to one seventy nine, and then you can go all the way up to almost three hundred bucks on a lot of them, and that's American. So of course you're looking at you know a different amount up there in Canada. But I know the last time I was in Calgary, and it's been a while, I could get a Flames jersey down here. For about 119, 129. And up there it was equal to about 209, 199 a couple yep. of years and ago. You see a team on the road and they're white, nobody's gonna buy the white jersey. They want the colors. Oh heck no. I I I, I don't buy white jerseys. I, unless it's unless it's my home team. <laughs> I I totally agree with that. And speaking of home teams, the blues, I know we've talked about goaltending with Jordan Bennington and Jake Allen. The thing that concerns me about this team, uh, before they played Pittsburgh on on Saturday and won and looked really good and then lost in a shootout on Sunday, they had lost three games in a row. They scored two goals against San Jose, one goal against the Coyotes, and then no goals against the Senators. And I know that Tarasenko's still out, but they really concern me when it comes to scoring because they can go several games to where they're just lights out with four or five goals, and then they fall into a rut to where their goaltender allows two goals or less in regulation and they lose the game. And I've always been a firm believer, Grant, that if your goaltender faces 28, 30 shots, 25 shots, whatever, and he only allows two goals, he's given you a great opportunity to win the game. Yeah. If you're giving up two or three goals a night, you're giving your team that chance to win. So 
when they're having those slumps, they're going to have to find some, not the stars to score. It's that secondary scoring that teams look for that come playoff time. Your stars are going to get their points, but it's your secondary scoring that's going to carry you over that hump. And I think there's a lot of teams searching for that right now. St. Louis just happens to be one of them. Yeah, and it's it gets frustrating at times. I know, I know there's times where I've watched Edmonton games and, you know, we talk about and all the talent they have and McDavid will score, Drysaddle will score, you know, Drysaddle will get two goals, McDavid will get a goal and two, two assists, and then there's nothing else from anybody else, and they lose five to three. Yeah, and that's what's happened up at Edmonton. I think those two are in on roughly 67, 68% of their goals. So yeah, I think it's right you, around there. That tells you where the offense is based. Well, if you're going to, if you need to beat them, you're going to have your checkers play against that line all night, which is going to make it harder for those guys to contribute, especially if you're not concerned about any secondary scoring. Sure. That's a, that's a great point because they're going to be too busy playing defense against that top line. And they're not going to try to take that chance or to cheat a little bit to get that scoring opportunity. No, you're going to try and play their top line even and hope that your top line gets one or two. And if you can do that, you're going to beat a one-dimensional team every time. We talked about this last time, and, you know, you had the same feeling, I think, that I did, that we had our front runners for the NHL awards, but you were kind of looking ahead. Do you have some more defined ideas of who you think will win some of these uh, awards at the end of the season? We'll just kind of go over them real quick. Uh, Jack Adams, you and I had talked about that before. Uh, what are your thoughts on that right now at this point? I still think Rick Tockett's got a chance. I think Bill Peters has a chance. Uh, I think Craig Berube's got himself in the mix now. So those those would be my top three for the Adams. Yeah, I, w- I would agree that those are probably in my top four to five. I still think with it being an East Coast team, I, I think that Barry Trotz is going to get a lot of votes. That's just who I think. I, I'm not saying he deserves it over the other guys because uh, Tockett and Barube have done a great job and they should definitely be considered for it. But I think uh, considering that, uh, especially since Barube hasn't been there for a full season, I think the NHL likes to give that award to guys that have been there a full season. And I'm still going to go with Barry Trotz on that. I, you could be right and I could be wrong, but – I think Barry Trotz has done a great job with the Islanders. He has. I mean, you got to give him credit for turning that around. But at the same time, you know, I look at the turnaround that Phoenix has had when everybody had written sure. them off. You look at the same thing with St. Louis, everybody had written them off, the turnaround they've had. So I kind of give them a little bit of weight for that. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a tight race. I don't think it's going to be a, a unanimous type of a vote on that one. <laughs> Well, and you look at Bill Peters in Calgary. I mean, nobody yeah. expected Calgary to be as good as they are. So if you're going on a guy based on a full year, then I would put him in the same category as Barry Tross. Yeah, he's done a great job. Nobody, I, I think at the beginning of the year, I had them picked at, I think, fifth or sixth in the Western Conference. I didn't have them pick anywhere near. <laughs> and I was one of the higher ones. A lot of people had them right out of the playoffs or in the eighth spot. Oh, no, I knew a lot of guys that had picked them to be eight, nine, and have no chance of being the best team in the West. So I think he's done a fabulous job there. Yeah, I'm looking pretty good because I picked them fifth or sixth and and look where they're at. So even though they're better than I thought they would be, I, I still look a little smarter than everybody else. <laughs> oh, no. You, that, you gave them a lot more credit than most people did. <laughs> uh, get into a tough one, and it's always tough every year, the Art Ross Trophy. I, I know a lot of people want Patrick Kane to get it. Of course, Connor McDavid's going to get consideration, but – I'm still picking Kucherov in Tampa, and I might be wrong. And the reason I'm picking Kucherov in Tampa is I think his division is better than Patrick Kane's. And I think that uh, the overall conference, the Eastern Conference, is better. So that's why I would pick uh, Kucherov. Are you sticking with Kucherov, or do you think Patrick Kane or maybe even Johnny Gaudreau could surprise somebody? I think guys like Goudreau are going to get some votes. I think Sidney Crosby is going to get some votes again. But if you look at the most dynamic player, Kucherov's been the most dynamic player all year. I mean, Connery McDavid's going to get some votes, but it's going to hurt him that Edmonton's going to miss the playoffs. It'd be the same as last year. It's going to hurt. Where, yeah, maybe he's the most dynamic player, but if your team doesn't support you, you lose votes. So I'm I'm still going with Kucherov. 
Well, we I I guess they say that great minds think alike, so I guess uh, we have great minds. <laughs> I'll go with that. There you go. Uh, the Calder, that's getting really heated. I I, I still think Elias up in uh, Vancouver is going to get it. I know he he's not going to end up playing a full season because of a, a slight injury, but to me, he's been the best rookie, the most dominant rookie. People here in St. Louis definitely want Jordan Bennington, and I think Jordan Bennington will probably get some votes in consideration. But uh, that's another one of those things with me that he's been consistent all year. He's been at the top of the list of the best rookies all year long. Of course, uh, Darlene's going to get some consideration. Uh, am I correct? Am I correct in thinking the same way you are, or do you see somebody else coming in and getting a good chance at that, like maybe Hart in Philadelphia? I think, well, I was going to say Hart's definitely got himself into the mix now. Same as Bennington. I think the Brinkat in Chicago is going to get some looks now. But the, the kid in Vancouver is fabulous. It, 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 he should win it. Even if he doesn't play the next 10 or 12 games, he's put himself in a position where I think he's going to get a lot of the vote. Yeah, I, I love the way he plays. I wish he would gain a little bit of weight. And maybe he will since he's so young, maybe 15 pounds to put on him because he does get beat up an awful lot in those games. I've seen so many games where he gets hit into the boards and he just crumbles. So I'm hoping that, you know, as he grows into his body and gets a little bit bigger, that doesn't happen to him. No, he's a, he's basically a kid in the true sense where he's still in a kid's body. So it, it just goes to show how talented he really is. I mean, even, even Wayne Gretzky, if you look at Gretzky's rookie year, uh, he looks like a stick out there. And if you look at him five, six years later, you know, he's not uh, McSorley or anything, but you can tell he put some weight on after his first few years in the league because he had to. Oh, yeah. I think my first year in Edmonton, Gretzky was about 160 pounds. So, And, and that was probably soaking wet. <laughs> so, I mean, guys fill out into their bodies, and he's going to fill out into his body a little bit. But the fact that he's putting up the numbers he is and contributing the way he is in the frame that he has – shows you that he's got a ton of talent. Oh, sure. I, I I love his hands. His stick work is just great. He's got great hands. Great hands. Got a good shot. I mean, I think he's got a surprisingly good shot that fools people. It's a quick shot. That's exactly right. It's a shot that especially a lot of goaltenders aren't expecting. And when and you know, Grant, for me and a goalie, if a guy's got that little bit of edge on you, and he just fools you with a shot, you're done. It doesn't matter what you do. If you show him a little bit of the glove and you think you're going to make that save, if his shot is a little quicker than you think it's going to be, you're the one making that mistake and that puck's behind you in the net. It is. I mean, I think goalies have adjusted to it over the course of the season, but it still fools guys. It's just a little bit better than people expect. I'm glad we're thinking a lot on that one. Getting into the Norris Trophy, I think that one is – at least in my mind, is the most competitive. Um, you know, Brent Burns is always going to be there. Carlson, but Carlson was hurt. Um, Chris Letang could get some consideration. I, and I know this isn't a popular pick around the NHL, but I really like Giordano. I think he's just a complete player. He's still my pick for this year. I think he's been the best defenseman day in, day out, all year long. Will he get any votes? He'll get some votes. Will he get enough being in the West? Hard to say, but if I was voting, he would get my vote. Yeah, I'll tell you what. If he doesn't win it, he he deserves it. And, you know, there's there's years like that where guys will, will win because they're on an East Coast team or a big city, a West Coast team, like, you know, Brent Burns in San Jose. And I love Brent Burns. But there's times that guys that do deserve it to play in some smaller market areas. You know, they're not on the East Coast. They're not on the West Coast. They're up in Calgary. And it's nothing against the city of Calgary. It's a great city, but a lot of the riders that vote are on the East Coast and West Coast. Well, that's part of the problem is you're a West Coast team. One, your games are late. Two, it's a smaller market, so you're not going to get the media coverage. And that come voting time, that plays against you. Sure it doesn't, and, and it shouldn't. They, they should be able to figure out some type of voting system, and I, I don't know what that would be. But we and I could probably talk about that for a long time. When it comes to the uh, Maurice Richard trophy, I still have Ovechkin getting that. Yeah, I agree. He's, he's been that guy this year where you don't know what the limit's going to be for goals. I mean, he, he loves to score goals. That's the biggest thing, and he's good at it. 
So, and, and you know what, sorry. No, go ahead. And you know what, Grant, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the eighties and nineties and people will say, I'm just an old guy and you're a little bit older than me, but I don't see a lot of guys taking one timers the way that Ovechkin does from that circle. You know, they get him that puck and it, he doesn't stop the puck and he doesn't deke with it. And he doesn't take us a, a little wrist shot and wait. He gets it off of his stick quickly, like Brett Hall, like Gretzky used to, like Messier used to. It, it Has teams gotten away from that one-time shot? Because maybe I'm missing it, Grant, but I don't see that as much as I used to. No, Alex is a shooter in the natural sense. Same category as a Brett Hall. You knew he's going to shoot the puck. He's not, you don't have to worry about a pass. He's not going to pass the puck. He's a shooter. And that was the same way with Hully. You knew he was going to shoot the puck. And he could shoot it from different angles. He could shoot it from one leg. He could shoot it from his knees. He's just a true shooter in the sense. Yeah, I, I always tell people, and I've told you this before, and people tell me I'm old again for this, but I've seen players live since the 70s. You know, I was a little kid. And I saw the California Golden Seals in 74, 73. I was four or five years old. But I've watched hockey a long time. And to me, when it comes to one of the most pure shooters and the best scorers, Brett Hall, in my mind, is definitely in the top three. People will tell me I'm crazy. But uh, you played with him. Uh, am I wrong? Oh, no. Holly is one of the best pure goal scorers you'll ever see. I've played against him and with him. And you get to see him every day in practice, play against him a bunch. He had probably one of the quickest releases I've, I got a chance to play against. When he could shoot it from odd angles, he didn't. You'd think he was covered. He'd still find a way to get a shot off. And goal scorers like that are hard to check. And there's not many of them. And Ovechkin's one of those guys that you think you might have him checked, but he finds a way to get a shot off. Yeah, and another thing about Brett Hall that a lot of people don't realize, he wasn't the fastest guy in the world. And a lot of people could not get a good hit on him. He was very evasive. And like you said, he could get that shot off and you thought you had a hit on him and he'd already had the shot off and you couldn't hit him. And you're like, wait, I didn't think Brett Hall was fast. He was deceptively quick in a way, but he wasn't overall fast. No, he was smart. Good goal scorers always put themselves in the right position where they seem to have a way of reading where the puck's going to be. Not where it is, but where it's going. And they get themselves in that spot where they end up getting the shot off. Yeah, I, I like to watch Ovechkin when he doesn't have the puck. That's one of the most fun things for me to do because you watch what he's doing, you watch how he's watching the play, and then he figures out where that soft spot is and waits right there for the pass. That's the great thing about what Gretz was. It's oh, not yeah. where the puck is, it's where's the puck going. And the great players have a sense of where that puck's going where they're a step ahead of everybody else because they can figure out where the puck's going before anybody else does. Oh, you could see guys in the corner. You could see McSorley mixing it up in the corner and Gretzky's over, you know, over on the other uh, face-off circle, just kind of moving in a little bit. And all of a sudden nobody's around him and he's got the puck alone right in front of the goalie. <laughs> no. And that's what makes them just a little bit better than everybody else. It's just that edge. It's, it's that, it's just that split second edge and knowing the game and knowing where that puck is going to go. You can have a lot of talent, but if you don't have a feel for that puck and a feel for the play, you may be successful, but you won't be one of the top players of your era or one of the top players of all time. I totally agree. I mean, a lot of it's being able to read the game and the great players can all read the game. It's like they're a step ahead. Am I wrong? Oh, no, it's, it, that's what makes them look so quick is because they are a step ahead. And uh, speaking of other awards, the Vesna, who do you still have on that? I, you, I think you probably have the same one you did last time. I had Vasilevsky. I going to say Carey Price has snuck into that mix. He's kind of carried Montreal on his back to get them to a playoff spot. That's another coach that deserves consideration of coach of the year. And I, I mentioned that to people. Oh, Montreal. I said, hey, do you know what he has to had to go through this year in that city? Uh, he, he's got to get some votes for coach of the year. And I hate to get back to that, but wouldn't you think he would? You would think he would, but because it's Montreal, there's a chance that he doesn't because everybody expects Montreal to be good. And I think that's just one of those misnomers of coming out of the East 
there's so many good teams in the East that everybody expects them to be a good team. So they kind of get overlooked sometimes. Yeah, and you know, I wasn't even thinking of Carey Price because I haven't seen a lot of his games the last two or three weeks. I haven't watched one of his games probably since the end of January, 1st of February. But you're right. I He is doing very, very well. And, and a lot of people don't take this into consideration. A lot of people here in St. Louis say, oh, you're too tough on Jake Allen. And I think there are some people that are. There are some people that expect perfection. But I always tell people, if you think the city of St. Louis or the city of Chicago or Nashville or whoever is too hard on their goaltender, try playing in, at Montreal uh, you know, and, and see what you've got to put up with there. You could have a, a 1.97 goals against and a save percentage of 934. And if you lose a game to the Maple Leafs or if you lost a game to the Nordiques, you were a bum. Oh, no. That, there's the big misnomers. Everybody looks at numbers. At the end of the day, it's still about winning. And sure it is. in a lot of the Canadian cities, I'll look at the numbers. If you're losing, they really don't care about your numbers. They want to see wins. I mean, if you look at Edmonton right now, Koskinen's got great numbers, mm-hmm. but not winning. You, you got to put wins on the board, and Montreal especially, because you've got both French and English media, which makes it a little bit tougher, <laughs> because now you're competing media also. So for Carey Price to basically, if he plays good, they win. Is basically what it's come down to the last little while. Sure. And uh, getting to uh, the Selkie Trophy, uh, who do you have for that one? That's a tough one. I mean, there's a few guys, and you're going to get some guys like Goudreau are going to get a look for that. That should probably get looks for other trophies, but they'll get a look mm-hmm. for that. Um, Marcia Show in Vegas is going to be good. Sure. Not the same sure. thing. Um, who else? Tavares will get some looks. Yeah, I'm thinking in St. Louis, Ryan, Ryan O'Reilly should get some looks. He may be not finish in the top five, but I think he'll get a look at least. He should. For what he's done for the Blues this year, he definitely should. So that's that's always a hard trophy to call because sometimes they slot different players in that really don't fit that mold. So that one's kind of an, always up in, an air, up in the air trophy. Sure, and I, I think Ryan O'Reilly has a better chance of, of winning the Lady Bing. Yeah, I'd say I'd probably get you a pretty good chance, especially when you've contributed that much. What about the Jennings Trophy, Grant? Uh, which team do you have for that? Oh, who's going to be good in the Jennings? Usually Nashville's around somewhere, Winnipeg's around there. I mean, it, it's hard to say because the last month you get some games that are blowouts, you get some games that are close, and there's usually half a dozen teams that are close for the Jennings. So. And I'm not, I'm not even sure who's leading the Jennings right now, but Tampa's going to be right there. You know, a lot of people, they look at Tampa, especially people in the Western Conference, and I, I don't think they realize how dominant of a team they are. When you look at a team, Grant, and you look at the differential between goals scored and, and goals allowed, and, you know, if you're up there in plus 20, plus 30, plus 40, you're a pretty good team. But Tampa, is at a, they're at a plus 93, Grant. I mean, that is just just jaw-dropping. Well, I saw them play in Pittsburgh when they came out of the All-Star break, and they'd had 13 or 14 days off. And for two periods, it was like, okay, maybe Tampa's not bad. They played hard for about eight minutes, and they looked fabulous. And ever since that game, they've kind of been on a roll. So for two periods, you look at them, you're like, well, everybody's talking about these guys, and they're just okay. Yeah, they finished their checks, they played hard. But when they turned it up a gear... That's a good hockey club. Teams have only scored, Grant, 190 goals against them in 72 games. Well, the part I like is they can play a physical game, too. I mean, that's the one oh, thing yes, I yes, they can. And the couple of games that I've seen is they finish their checks, they're good in their own end, and they're dynamic offensively. So they've got the full package, and they've got that extra gear that a lot of teams don't have. Yeah, and that's one thing I like about Kucherov. You know, he can score, but he's a big guy. He can be physical, too. He's got a little bit of bite to him which the great players can play with that little bit of bite. A couple more things I wanted to talk to you about. You know, we talked about uh, star players and how they affect a team. When you're a team and you see one of your star players that's injured and maybe isn't coming back before the playoffs start or maybe they're questionable before the playoffs start, uh, does that ever have an impact in a professional locker room? You know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. From your days playing when – one of your best players were, were, you know, was hurt. I know Gretz wasn't hurt a lot in his career, but when he was hurt and you were looking towards the playoffs, 
you guys probably had enough leadership in that locker room to not worry too much about it. It just it just meant that we had to do more as individuals. Everybody else had to do a little bit more. And your good teams are going to be that way, where if one of your stars are hurt, somebody else is just going to have to give a little bit more. And the good teams can do that, where you'll get two guys that'll chip in to cover for the one guy that's hurt. So and that's, again, that comes down to your secondary scoring, your leadership in the room, that sort of thing, where you just need other guys to step up into that role. One more thing that just came to my mind, and I, I, I should have uh, been thinking about this earlier. I always do this in guest spots and interviews. Do you think that Ken Hitchcock will come back with the Oilers, or do you think it depends on who they bring in for the GM? I think a lot of that's going to be who the GM is. I mean, obviously the new GM is going to want to bring in his own people. So depending on who they hire as a GM as to whether Hitch comes back, I think I'd like to see him give Hitch some consideration as the GM. He's been around the game a long time. He's a smart hockey guy, but nobody's talking about that. I think, I think he'd be a good fit. Uh, yeah, he, he is super smart. He's seen everything. You know, he's, he's, he's coached in different, you know, different eras. So, you know, he's he's just a very, very smart guy. Uh, he knows, like you and I talked about earlier, what players to have, what players to put together. Yeah, sometimes he mixes lines up a, a lot, but eventually he, he'll find a line that works, and when it stops working, he'll put something else together. He he really knows the game of hockey. He does, and he knows talent. So in my world, he'd be a good fit as a general manager. Hey, anybody that can tell Brad Hall to stop trying to be so – offensive minded and start playing defense and have Brett buy into it. They're a pretty good coach to me. Well, I agree. If you can get only to buy into something, you've got a good job coaching. <laughs> because uh, there were other coaches uh, that uh, coached him that tried to get him to do that. And let's just say he didn't do it. <laughs> well, Holly's version of defensive hockey is to score more goals. So, which in the air I played it, I have no problem with that. As long as you're a plus player, that's all anybody can ask of you. If you can go out and score 50 goals, you're a plus player. I'm good with that. If you score 30 goals and you're a minus player, then you've got to play better defense. There you go. Um, I see so much on Twitter, and, and you've gotten into it with some people on Twitter. And I, I try to stay away from it, but I keep getting the same thought from a lot of young people. And I've tried to reason with them, give them stats, give them win-loss records, give them the players from a certain era, who's in the Hall of Fame, so on and so forth. But the general consensus I'm getting from people under 30 years old is that goaltenders in the 80s and 90s were not as good as goaltenders today, that goaltenders today are faster, much quicker, and the players they're facing are much better. I even had one guy, Grant, tell me that if Wayne Gretzky played today, he would probably be on the third line. Obviously, he doesn't know a whole lot about hockey, so. <laughs> I'll, break, I'll break down the goal today for you. I'll break down. It's the simplest way. Take the goalies today, put them in the equipment we wore, which is 30 pounds heavier, and tell me if they're quicker and faster. And then also, another thing, Grant, take away the wooden sticks from the guys in the 80s and give them these light sticks from today. I mean, you look at goalie equipment now, it weighs six to eight pounds. Everybody's going to be faster. Hence, they wear it bigger. Make it 30 pounds, goalie equipment shrinks, guys get less mobile. I remember my goalie equipment in the 80s and 90s. It was not light. No, and guess what? Pucks hurt back then. Guys complain now because they're shrinking the equipment a little bit, and pucks hurt. Well, guess what? Pucks always used to hurt. That's the way the game was. Different generations, and pucks hurt more for guys in the 70s and 60s than they did for us in the 80s and 90s. That's just the, the evolution of the game. So it's hard to compare different generations because the equipment changes so much. Yeah, I, I think that's a common misconception when it comes to goaltenders, Grant, is that as a goaltender, you don't get hurt because you have pads. Uh, they don't understand the little cuts, nicks, bruises, welts. Uh, it's it's not, you're not, especially back, you know, when you played, you're not fully protected. You're going to come out of the game with, with injuries. Maybe nothing serious, but you're going to have bruises and welts and scrapes and cuts and and everything on you. I, I'd love to take the equipment I wore and get, hand it to somebody and say, okay, if you think you could be quicker wearing this, then please feel free. Now, guess what? 
somebody hits you in the arm, it's going to hurt. That's just the way it is. There's no, you don't go down and block it with your body. You catch the puck because guess what? If you didn't catch it, it hurt. Yeah. And you know, for the most part, uh, you know, they used to call me a stand up goaltender, you know, that I didn't go down a lot. And I don't see very many stand up goaltenders today. There are not very many today, and they don't have to worry about their pads getting wet. That's right. The more we went down, the heavier the pads got because they got wet. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> the big, that's the biggest difference between the eighties, nineties, into the two thousands. Is all of a sudden you got foam, it doesn't get wet. Guess what? It's lighter. You can go down more. You can also wear it bigger. Back then, it got wet, it got heavy, and you wanted to be on your feet. Yeah, you know, like you said, it weighed around thirty pounds at the beginning of the game, and then when you were done, it was at least a couple pounds more. Oh yeah, so. I think we moved okay for dragging that around. Well, I'll tell you what, I watched plenty of your games, and I, I, I think you did a pretty good job there, Grant. <laughs> I would say I was reasonably mobile. There you go. Uh, before I let you go, I, I we, we've talked about making cocoa. I know you just had the premiere there at the Dunes and Desert Hot Springs. It was kind of a neat way you guys set that up with the golf carts and everything and the screen. You want to tell the fans a little bit about how that was and the whole setup for that premiere there at the Dunes? Well, we had a little bit of fun with it. I mean, I'm old enough to have gone to a drive-in theater, so our golf course is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's no homes around it, so we set it up like a drive-in theater. Instead of having cars, we used golf carts. So we had, we had a great night with it. We were aiming for about 140 people, and we ended up with about 350. So oh, great. it turned out to be a great night. Great. Hopefully you got uh, some good uh, money there for your charity. I know you always uh, put a charity in with that. Uh, can you tell the fans what charity that was that it benefited? Well, we've been doing some stuff the last little bit for the Betty Ford Center out here. Oh, great. And then we're, we're working on another project to benefit them. So maybe we're going to make another announcement here probably in the next two or three weeks. That is just awesome. I'm so, so happy to hear that. I know that uh, your charity work is very, very important to you. Uh, the movie Making Coco is doing so well. Uh, you're getting awards for it. I know that Don Metz and Adam Scorgi and yourself have just worked very, very hard to get it where it's at. You just won the best overall film in the Bergen County Film Festival. Uh, I, You can just tell from the trailer that I've seen that you put your heart into it. Don Metz really worked hard, and you know we both know Adam. I only know Don by reputation, but it's something that everybody put their heart into. It was, and we had a lot of fun doing it. So, I mean, I know we're trying to work on a date in St. Louis right now, which will be exciting. We're working on a date for Vegas. We've got a couple more dates coming up in Canada. So we're having a lot of fun with it and enjoy sharing it with everybody. Great. And I think I seen online that you're working on one, maybe in Buffalo. We are taking a look at Buffalo also. So a lot of different areas. We're looking at one down in Tennessee. We're looking at one in Mississippi. So we're kind of spreading it all over the place. Well, that's great. It, 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 the more people that see it, I think the better off it is because I think a lot of times the average fan doesn't know what goes into being an NHL player, not just the on-ice stuff, but the off-the-ice stuff, relationships. It, it, it's, it's a fun game. It's fun to play. But there are some things in your life that uh, when it comes to the game, it gives you very positive things, but it can also hurt relationships and, and have negative aspects in your life. But it's those negative aspects that help you grow along with the positive aspects. It is. I mean, being a professional athlete is the greatest thing in the world, but you're going to pay a price to do it. And a lot of people don't realize that. So it's just a way of pointing out that there's a price to pay to be a professional athlete. And it's a thousand percent worth doing. That's, that's great. And, and like I said, you can tell that from watching you play that you had such a great time and Grant, I want to thank you so much for joining me again from a view from the crease. Uh, it's been great for you to agree to come on the drop every month and talk hockey. And hopefully I can get you right before the playoffs next month. We can kind of look at some of the matchups and talk about who we think will be the favorite. And and maybe we might even delve in, into some analytics. I know you and I aren't firm believers in analytics, but we're open to it a little bit. So maybe we'll kind of go into some of that too. Sounds great. I look forward to it, Lance. Great, Grant. You have a good rest of your evening. Say hi to your family for me, and I look forward to talking to you again next month. I look forward to it. Thanks, Grant. Have a good day. 
All right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Drop Podcast. To get more of The Drop, check out our website at droppodcast.com. You can also find us on Google Play, iTunes, and the iHeartRadio app. You can follow us on Instagram at the.drop.podcast or on Twitter at Drop Hockey Show. You can email The Drop Podcast or host Lance DeScott at lanced at droppodcast.com. To find out more about Lineup Media, go to lineupmedia.fm. Until next time, let's go Blues! This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.